Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. End-time prophecy is so very important for the body of Christ, okay? Um, It's important for us to understand. And when we get off on end-time prophecy, when we get off the, the trail, then we don't truly have the hope that the believer is supposed to have in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and His promise to renew all things, okay? So when you look at the world around you, just think about this. When you look at the world around you today, what can you do to change it, to make it more godly? What can you do to redeem the world? How are you actually doing on redeeming yourself? How's that going? So if you can't even redeem yourself, then how is the church corporately uh, going to redeem the whole world? Are you guys understanding what I'm trying to say? We can do everything we can possibly do as human beings in in the medical field and technology and all these things and make great strides, okay? But we will not uh, be able to change the spiritual nature of mankind. We can't change that, all right? Um, only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. All right. I like to think about this scenario. If you've got a Bible and, um, and you were to just visit an indigenous tribe somewhere in the world and you were to give them this Bible uh, and you handed them a correctly translated Bible, okay, in their language, and you left them alone with that Bible for three years and they had no outside influence or teaching of other men, Uh, and you were just allowing them to read that Bible from cover to cover under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and rightly dividing the Scripture, after reading and studying, considering every book, every chapter, every page, what would be their overall conclusion about the Bible and what God's Word says? Do you understand? We drop this Bible off in the middle of a tribe that a brand new translation in their language, they have no outside influence, and you tell them, read this cover to cover, we're going to come back in three years, and we want to know what you believe. What would be their belief structure? Would it align with what we believe when we read the Bible from cover to cover? Or have we been influenced by other men, by other teachings, by other philosophies, by other denominations. So that's been my approach to Scripture. I don't care what I was taught. I love my heritage as a Southern Baptist, but what I value the most is that I'm rightly dividing Scripture, that I'm really taking Scripture for what it actually says in the original text, and I am not going to allow it to sway me one way or the other. I'm going to take the Bible for what it actually says. Okay? Now, um, I've heard Pastor John MacArthur talk about this. Their church actually does this. And he says what he has found is when he goes back to these areas and he, and he meets again and he begins to preach to these tribes and have meetings with these tribes, that they get so excited because they're like, that's the exact thing that we thought. That's, that's what we believe. You know, they get so excited because they came to the same conclusions. And I will tell you that as a, as a pastor in my study... I get really excited when I have no outside influence and I come to a conclusion based on my study of Scripture and the original text. I get really excited when I find other people who have come to the same conclusions 
on their own as well. Because what it means is the Spirit is leading us in a direction in Scripture, and it's, and it's showing us this, this big picture. So we understand if we just take Scripture for what it says, and we set our um, preconceived notions, our speculations aside, what does the Bible actually say? And that's what I want to talk about today, okay? Um, these four things I've mentioned before have been the backbone of, I would say, orthodoxy, Christianity, since the very beginning. And here's how I boil it down. Creation, corruption, redemption, and restoration. Creation, corruption, redemption, and restoration. So we have the story of creation we see how uh, mankind fell. They rebelled against God, both this, in the spiritual, the fallen spiritual beings, and the fallen human beings, okay? And all creation was corrupted. Then we see redemption. Christ came and paid the ultimate sacrifice, and everyone in the past looks forward to the cross, and everyone who was born after the cross looks backward to the cross, and Christ is that unifying, uh, His death and burial and resurrection is that unifying finished work of, the, of faith in Christ alone, okay? All throughout the ages, all right? So that was redemption. But we understand that there are still fallen spiritual beings, that you and I are still uh, in a fallen nature. We still deal with death and, and corruption. We still deal with all of these things in our world today. That's because we're still in a time in which the first fruits of the Spirit, which is Christ and His work, has been given, but there's a coming a day when the full restoration will take place. The full, um, all things being made new. Do you all get that? So... Um, Again, that's both in the spiritual and the physical, and that's what we have to look forward to. So let me just uh, go through these points real quick. There was a rebellion and the corruption of all creation with both physical consequences and spiritual consequences. Out of the 70 nations, God chose Israel, and in an everlasting covenant, He purposed them to be the people by which the redemption would come. In the first coming of Jesus, God fulfilled many of the prophecies concerning the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. Yet at His ascension, there were many more left to be fulfilled. You have to do something with those prophecies, okay? Uh, meaning He didn't fulfill all of them. There are yet prophecies for Christ to fulfill. There was a mystery revealed in that the Gentiles would receive the gospel of grace while national Israel faced judgment or being hardened for a time called the time of the Gentiles. Paul talks about it, and, and they describe it as a time in which Israel is trampled by the Gentile nations. That has been Israel's history from the time in which they were cut off in 70 AD. They tried to return again later on. They were cut off again and dispersed again. We've seen Israel just trampled under the foot of Gentiles for 2,000 years. And finally, back in 1948, they uh, became a nation again, which has never happened in the history of, of all mankind, okay? Was a nation that ceased to exist and then comes back and, and forms again with all of their traditions and all of their uh, religious um, understanding and all of that. Okay, so again, then the final chapter being Jesus' return at some point after His ascension to redeem all things. But the questions are this, when will He return? Will He redeem heaven and earth? Will He redeem just heaven or just earth? We read the, the songs, we've sang songs for years about how 
Um, we're gonna, when we die, we're going to go to heaven. We're going to get a mansion. We're going to walk on streets of gold. But is that actually what the Bible tells us is going to happen in, in, for the believer? And there's confusion about all of that because we, we think that when we die here, we're going to reside there forever. But we've learned that Christ's uh, and God's overall plan for humanity and for His people is heaven and earth, both heaven and earth, the new heavens and the new earth, okay? Uh, when is Satan bound and why is he destroyed later on? Why doesn't God just destroy him immediately, okay? Was God finished with His formerly chosen people? And again, when, how, where, who, and why? When we're asking the questions about end-time prophecy, do we understand all of... Do we know the answers to all of these, okay? And then this concerning the end times is where all of the conflict begins within the body of Christ. I thought about calling this the views that divide us because within the body of Christ, there are several different views about the end-time prophecy and, and what people think. Now, granted... I'm going to tell you what I believe and why I believe it, and I'm actually going to tell you what some others believe and why I don't believe that. I've studied it through, one of which I took an entire year, and I didn't preach on any end-time prophecy because I wanted to... There were some valid points made, and so I, I basically said, well, I can't preach on that until I'm certain that what I'm going to be teaching is, is my conviction, that I believe that's actually what the Bible teaches. So I took an entire year off from preaching anything related to prophecy, and I studied through this whole thing and came to find out that it caused way more con uh, conflicts uh, in the Bible than it does making sense, okay? And so I tossed that to the side, and we're going to be talking a little bit about that today. I know that most of you have heard major points of prophecy talked about for several years now, and there's a lot of speculations and a lot of theories, as I mentioned before, when it comes to the end times. And some have real merit, some have real valid points. But the, what I do is I categorize it in an area in which I say, well, if I don't know the answer to that, I'm setting it over here, and there's a question mark by it, and I'm going to continue to study until Scripture makes sense. I do not say, well, this is what I'm going to believe, uh, or, or yeah, I see the evidence pointing this way, but I'm just I'm going to believe this no matter it, what the evidence says. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so my approach to Scripture is I want to get it right. That's my heart behind it. I don't want to believe something that's not true. And if it's not true and you ask me, or if it's not, if I don't understand it and you ask me a question about it, I will say I don't know. I'm studying that. I'm still trying to find the answers on that particular subject. So if you're looking for a pastor who has all the answers about prophetic things, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that I have it all worked out. I do believe I have a very good grasp on it, and I will show you the evidence that I believe I found in Scripture as to why I believe what I believe, and I think that you will see that overall, when taking Genesis to Revelation, you're going to understand that it makes sense, and that the other things just don't make sense, and that's why I believe what I believe, is because uh, it is the only option, I believe, in all of these options of end-time prophecy and interpretation. It's the only option that makes sense completely with God's plan without breaking rules in God's Word, okay? Without breaking interpretive rules and without creating conflicts that can't be resolved, okay? 
For instance, I mentioned a few weeks back as early as chapter 12 of Genesis that God very clearly made a covenant with the descendants of Abraham, one that he said is an everlasting covenant, okay? That immediately, for me, answers one of our major questions that we ask. What does it mean when God uses the word chosen? What, does, what is the nature of a blood covenant that he cut with Abraham? Right? It, remember I said that God was saying, it, may this be done to me, all these pieces of the animal, may this be done to me if I break my covenant. Okay? And then he says, uh, how about a covenant with an unchanging God, a God who never changes? Well, that certainly plays into the scenario. How long is everlasting? I mean, these are pretty simple questions that we're asking. How long is everlasting? Anybody have an answer for that? It, forever. Yeah, it's not hard. Okay. Well, what if Israel is really, really, really naughty? Okay. What if they're really naughty? Does that mean God breaks his promises? Does that mean God changes? Does that mean God takes something that's supposed to be everlasting forever and says, nah, I'm done with that. I've cut it off. Do you see how it causes a conflict? Well, I can't go with this because your scenario here, because you're trying to tell me that God's finished with Israel and that he broke his promise to them. And I, I won't go there, okay? So, um, again, we will have deviated from a clear biblical prophetic baseline into one that actually causes confusion and causes church splits. And that's why you have two different kinds of, you know, Baptist churches. You've got your, your uh, you know, Southern Baptist over here and your missionary Baptist over here and the only differences they have are whether or not you clap on one and four or, or you know, or one and three or two and four. You understand what I'm saying? That sort of thing causes confusion and causes church uh, families to split. And we're supposed to be unified. That shouldn't be the things that divide us. And the whole point here today is, is to not cause division, but to say that no matter what we believe about these end time things, I would love for us all to be on the same page, but it should never cause us a division uh, to the point that we would say, well, I'm done with that church or I'm done with that family, okay? Because we have differences of belief, all right? Okay, so again, if you take that, you, that, that particular viewpoint, you would say that the hope that we have in the return of our Savior is now gone. It's diminished or doesn't exist. He's not coming. He already came, okay? Um, not to mention, again, if God destroyed Israel after all of that, if he promised them and made a covenant with them after all of that, then where does that leave you when he uses the same words to describe his, his relationship to you, okay? Like he calls us chosen. He says we have a new covenant with him. He says we have everlasting life. Well, what if I'm really, really, really naughty? What if I, do, what if I make some terrible mistakes, well, if God was willing to cut Israel off because they didn't do it right, would that not mean that he's going to cut me off because I didn't do it right? So do you see how what we believe about his faithfulness to Israel affects whether or not we can have confidence that he will be faithful to us? And that's why it's so important to understand what grace is, that it's all about Jesus. It's all about his work and has nothing to do with your ability alone. You cannot live a righteous life. Your righteousness is as filthy rags, and only by His work, His righteousness, is what God sees when He looks at you. So 
Do we try? I would say, no, we rest. We don't try. We don't strive to be holy. We rest in Christ. We rest in the finished work. We are thankful that He did what He did for us. Okay? And we do not allow that to, uh, to, to, to take away our confidence in Him and His covenant. In addition to God's plan for Israel, there are many wildly different viewpoints about all of end-time prophecy. And it's a very important point because, again, like I said, what you believe about end-times prophecy, I'm going to use a, a, a word here that we don't just throw out every day. The word is salvific. We, your beliefs on end-times prophecy is not salvific in nature, meaning... If you believe that Christ came back in 70 AD, that doesn't mean that you're not saved, okay? You can still put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross and believe something different than what I believe. And, that, and I'm not going to say, oh, well, you don't even know Jesus. And matter of fact, we don't need to get in that habit of deciding who's saved and who's not. There are some days I look in the mirror and wonder if I am, but thank God it doesn't, it doesn't matter about what I do, it matters only about what he's done. That's the beauty of grace, all right? Okay, um, so there are four main views of eschatology, and I'm going to use that word eschatology, and that's just another big word to, that means end-time prophecy, what we believe, the theology of end-time prophecy, okay? And those four main views have offshoots that I'm going to share with you as well. And each of these views uh, propose a different take on three key aspects of end-time prophecy, all right? And here they are, the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Is that literal or is it allegorical? The binding of Satan. Is Satan bound right now? Because if, if you're millennialist, well, we'll get into that. Is Satan bound right now or is that something that happens in the future? Is that a future event? Number three, the relationship between Israel and the church. Did the church replace Israel, or does God still have a future for His chosen nation? And before I present these views, I'm going to talk a little bit about what we're going to talk about at our family Bible study. And this is, the word is, uh, is hermeneutics, all right? A hermeneutic is your approach to biblical interpretation. How do you interpret the Bible? Do you simply read a verse in the Old Testament and say, yeah, that's for me. That's, that, I can take a verse out of Leviticus and, and that was written just for me and I can apply it to my life. And, or is there actually structure and there's a proper way to interpret Scripture, right? That's what we're going to talk about. I'm, I want to, and many of you guys already know how, but I, as, a, as a body, I want to go through and discuss how are we supposed to interpret and study our Bible? What is the proper way to study our Bible? And that is called a hermeneutic, a biblical interpretive approach, okay? Um, first of all, um, it should be the default instead of speculating and drawing our own meaning. And, and what I'm going to talk about is a consistent, literal, and historical interpretation. And that's the approach that I take. Okay, first of all, it's consistent. You apply the same hermeneutic method of interpretation throughout the whole of Scripture. You, just because it's the Old Testament, you don't, you don't use a different hermeneutic than you do in the New Testament, okay? If God never changes and He revealed His Word to us and it's divinely inspired, then we can read the Old Testament the same way that re, we read the New Testament. And the more we study and understand the different players in the whole scenario, the more we'll understand Bible. 
All of the prophecies concerning Christ's first coming were fulfilled literally. He literally rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. He, he fulfilled that literally. There were hundreds of prophecies about his first coming that he fulfilled. Not a one of them were spiritual or allegorical in nature. Every single one of them were literal. And so therefore, why should we change our method of interpretation regarding his second coming? Why would all of a sudden his second coming be allegorical or spiritual in nature if his first coming was literal in nature? You get it? Okay. Um, those fulfillments, as I said, I believe with all of my heart, those will be literal as well. And, and again, that's consistency in our interpretation. Literal is that the Bible means what it says. If something is a figure of speech, it tells you that it's a figure of speech. It's pointing to something real. For instance, the camel through the eye of the needle. For us, in our culture, we have no idea what that's talking about, so we could very easily just take that as, oh, well, that's impossible. A camel can't go through the eye of the needle. But when you understand the, the historical context and you understand that it's not literal, it was a figure of speech, but there was an actual eye of the needle in the city of those days, and it was a gate, right? Then you know what Scripture's... Ta it's not impossible, but it's very difficult, okay? That was the purpose. So if you read it, with a Western eye, you're going to say, oh, well, it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. But that's not what it was saying, okay? You get that? Uh, again, by understanding historical cultural context, we know uh, as that was a Jewish proverb and that was something that was very, very difficult, then that gives us an understanding. And if you were to take it literal, then you would be, um, then you, or I'm sorry, allegorical, you'd be off the trail of proper interpretation, Okay? Um, I want to read a passage of Scripture that offers an exp explanation elsewhere in Scripture, and sometimes it offers it right, and I'm going to give you an example, okay? So this is uh, verse 12. I believe, I don't, for some reason I don't have it, uh, the reference, but it's Revelation, I think it's chapter 2. It might be chapter 3, verses 12 um, through 16. I'm going to skip through a few there, but we'll have it on the screen. All right. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And then, verse 16, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. Okay, so when we look at this, we say, okay, well, there's seven lampstands and seven stars, were these actually stars that he's holding in his hand? What, what are these lampstands? Are they just lampstands or do they represent something? Does he actually spit a sword out of his mouth, right? Well, the Bible has uh, ways that we interpret this. Sometimes it's right there in the passage, and sometimes it's because we have an earlier understanding of what it means. Our understanding of the sword is taken from every mention of this type of language throughout the whole of Scripture. So the Hebrews taking up the sword was meant to describe an attempt to topple governmental authorities. And in this case, this uh, is Jesus returning to topple the principalities and powers, both human and spiritual, that have usurped uh, authority in a fallen nature. Does that make sense? So when he returns... He's going to take up the sword and topple those authorities, the spiritual authorities that are fallen 
and the human authorities that are fallen, he's going to topple them and set up his own kingdom. That's what it means when we say that sword proceeds out of his mouth. Okay? It will come as a result of his spoken word, just like in creation when he says, light be, and there was light. Okay? So I think sometimes the trap people, gets caught, people get caught up in is, well, that doesn't sound realistic. Okay, it's God. Okay? I mean, it's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. And, and I'm not saying that as a cop-out. If God wanted to spit, if Jesus wants to spit a sword out of his mouth, I'm fine with that, okay? I think the Bible offers a more uh, legitimate explanation for us as to what that means. Now let's look at verse 20 of the same passage because Scripture itself gives us the interpretation. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. It tells you right there that these are the representatives in those particular churches in that particular day. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay. Now we can get into all of that and break down what all those seven churches represent. They were actual churches of that day, but they also represent kind of the spirit within all the different churches. And honestly, I can pick out the seven different church representations within different people in the church. I can say, oh, well, that, that guy over there, he's... I'm not going to actually point at anybody. That guy over there, he's, uh, he's the church of Laodicea. He's, he's living lukewarm right now. He has no direction and no purpose. Or that church over there, that's, that's the church of Philadelphia. So you can point at people in the church that represent this spirit... You can, represent, you can point out church bodies, local church families that represent each of those. And oddly enough, you can go back in church history and assign an, a specific time period of the life of the church to these different types of churches as well. So I believe that passage does have a grander meaning, but we also understand that it had a literal meaning during that day and time, Okay. And that's why we study to show ourselves approved. Another point when reading and understanding prophecy, we're told to watch and not to predict, okay? So while we look around and we see all these signs taking place, do we believe that these are the actual signs of Christ's return? Or are we going to be consistent and say, well, what we see today, and this is my particular viewpoint, is that what we're seeing today are the chess pieces being moved. And we know that, Okay, Scripture uses the, 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 um, the circumstance of a woman being in labor, okay? Well, when, when a woman is impregnated, it takes a period of time before she even starts to show, okay? And then, clearly, when you look at her, you know she's pregnant. And then, of course, when she goes into labor, you're like, oh, it's, this is about to happen. What I'm telling you is that we, the signs that we see today are us looking at the world saying, it's pregnant, like it's, things, are, things are happening. Like we know it's certain that, that it's pregnant. This is, and, and the due date is very sure to come very soon, okay? Um, but then when Jesus talks about it, he says the generation that sees all of these things, and he has a list there, okay, of all the things that that generation's gonna see. He's gonna say, when this generation sees all of these things, these are the beginning of birth pangs. So he's basically saying, when this generation who's at that point sees all of these things transpire, every single one of them, that is when labor starts and you know it's on. It's about to happen. 
She's about to give birth. Do you understand? That's my personal viewpoint on the whole thing. So I believe the signs that we're seeing in the world today are signs that this woman's pregnant, okay? If you want to look at it as a chessboard, all the pieces are being moved, it's being set up, and the game's about to ensue. Do you understand? So the end time uh, unfolding is a, is a period of time of that, that seven years, that 70th week of Daniel that we're going to see unfold, all right? But that's why we're studying the mask of the beast, because I can point to you how certain things have to happen, technologies and mindsets and globalism and all this stuff, it has to happen before the, the events in Revelation can actually take place, and that's what we're seeing today. All right. Um, again, it's easy to speculate and formulate our own ideas of how all of this is going to unfold, um, but my advice is to let Scripture speak clearly and teach it clearly in the areas that God's Word is clear and the areas um, in which it's unclear, as I said before. Don't speculate too much, and if you do speculate, then tell people this is speculation, okay? Um, again, for the areas that aren't clear, watch and pray and let the Lord do His thing because we know, I mean, there's a pregnancy, right? We all are aware of that. The question is, when is that woman going to go into labor, all right? Now, here are the four basic views and their offshoots. Amillennialism. Ah is, means no, so here's what this means. There is no millennium. So what they're basically saying is that we are in the midst of the millennium or that the millennium is just this undesignated period of time um, that happened when Christ was crucified and resurrected and it began at that point. And so as long as it takes, whether it's a thousand years or whether it's 5,000 years or whether it's millennia, okay, I've even had somebody tell me that, this could take millennia. And eventually, the church is going to change the world, and the world's going to be awesome, and Christ is going to be like, hey, that looks like a place where I want to set up my kingdom, because all those Christians have done such a great job, and, and I'm going to return now, and I'm going to set up my kingdom, okay? Um, and then they say that would be the eternal state. So what they would say, there is no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. Most prophecy was fulfilled physically in the first century or spiritually in the life of the believer today. Again, they spiritualize and allegorize, which then just means, well, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, this is the view held by most Catholics, okay? Um, it, is, it is the majority view within those who would call themselves Christ followers, uh, is amillennialism. Okay, there's an offshoot, a growing offshoot of amillennialism. Uh, I would call it cousins to amillennialism. It, is, uh, it agrees with almost every point. And it's called preterism. And their take is that Christ judged Israel for rejecting Jesus. And as a result, he cut them off for good in 70 AD. Uh, this, again, culminating in their destruction. And his coming in 70 AD was one of judgment and destruction. So the way God fulfilled his promises to Israel was basically crushing them and to where they would exist no more. All right. It was the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies concerning the promises God made to Israel for them to be a blessing to all nations. Essentially, they blew it, so you're toast. Okay, And then uh, to a preterist, those promises again were fulfilled in Jesus Christ alone. So they would say, well, all of those promises and prophecies that had to do with Israel, now they have to do with Christ fulfilling them and the church fulfilling them. Okay? 
but there are specific promises that were not fulfilled that it is impossible for the church to fulfill. Um, the little problem of those specific promises made to Israel, um, and again, it forces them then to allegorize or spiritualize what the Bible says to come to a conclusion. For example, uh, and this is just one I'll throw out there real quick, specific boundaries that God gave Abraham when he said, I'm going to make you a nation and you're going to have these borders. These are going to be your borders. Well, that's never happened in our history or in Israel's history. So either God missed the mark in his promise or there's a future fulfillment coming for Israel to actually have those boundaries. I take the historical, historical literal view which says God will restore Israel, okay, and that one day they will have the actual boundaries that God said that they would have, okay? Well, the, the preterist would then say, well, Jesus didn't fulfill that literally, but he fulfilled it spiritually because his kingdom has no end and all the earth is his. So they would say, those boundaries, that's just an undesignated way to communicate, just like they say, um, just like they would say the uh, thousand year reign, oh, that doesn't mean a thousand years. They didn't really know how to say a, you know, a whole bunch of years back then, so they just used the term a thousand years. That's, that's the argument that they use. Well, they, they kind of did know how to use the term thousand years. It's used six times in the book of Revelation specifically. Uh, they knew what a legion was. They knew uh, how to say an innumerable amount of time. They knew how to say an undesignated amount of time. So that's, to me, those are little things that I found in my study of saying, well, I can't buy into this because they're, it's creating too many conflicts and uh, causing uh, too much confusion, okay? Again, once you start allegorizing and spiritualizing, where does that end? Where does it end when we start to spiritualize things? And who gets to decide which scriptures get to be allegorized or spiritualized and which ones aren't? Who gets to make that distinction, right? Because I may say, well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What if, you know, I believe that's spiritual, that Christ isn't really coming. God's not really sending Jesus, an actual person, to earth, right? I can spiritualize that. If I did so, I would be wrong. Do you all understand what I'm getting at? Is, is that once you start to spiritualize, then our foundation in God's word becomes shifting sand. We don't know what's spiritual, we don't know what's allegorical, and we don't know what's literal. So therefore, me personally, the standard I use is a historical, literal approach to interpretation, okay? That gives us the assurance about the true, literal fulfillment of every promise that God made both to Israel and to His church. And we can have assurance and we can trust that God's going to do everything He said He's going to do. Now, there are two different factions of, of um, preterism. There's partial preterism and there's full preterism. And partial preterism says the millennium, again, is an undesignated period in which Christ reigns from heaven. So He's sitting at the right hand of God right now reigning, okay? Um, the church will influence the world as leaven grows in a lump of dough or yeast as it permeates a lump of dough, it will eventually grow into the kingdom on earth. So no matter, it's almost like, honestly, it's almost like Christian evolution, but the church is like, 
it, it, it's going to take who knows how long, but eventually the church is going to keep getting better and better and having more and more influence in the world that, that we're going to take over the whole world. And you see all kinds of churches teaching this. Bethel out of California teaches this. They talk about the seven mountains of influence and how we need to be in the city council and we need to have the White House and we need to be, you know, they say these are all the areas that we need to take as the body of Christ and we're going to plant our flag and we're going to take over the world piece by piece, country by country, city council by city council, government by government, and eventually the whole world will be Christianities. There's a slight problem with that. How's that going? <laughs> How's that going? Anybody want to tell me? <laughs> so if again, and then boil that down to a very simplistic question, how's that going in your personal life? Have you perfected yourself yet? Have you been able to make all the right decisions yet? Right? So it puts all of the pressure on you and what you can do and the church and what the church can do. And nowhere in Scripture does the Bible tell us that it's the church's job to redeem the world. The whole point of everything we've seen in all of human history is God saying, you can't do it on your own. You need me. And even the millennial reign is to show that even, in, even if humankind had a righteous leader, the perfect leader, that in the end they will still fail and rebel against him. Because that's the, that's the lesson of the millennium. That's why there's a thousand-year reign. Because Christ is going to reign for a thousand years. Satan's going to be released to tempt the nations. And believe it or not, when they had a perfect leader, then these people are going to rise up and shake their fist in the face of the perfected Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and they are going to launch a rebellion against him. And he's going to say, see, even when you have, God's going to say, even when you have a perfect leader on this earth, globally, you will still spit in the face of God. And that's when... Christ, uh, God gives Christ um, the authority then to uh, separate the sheep from the goats from all history. And that's when he does away with evil for good. And God says, humanity can't do it. Nice try. You've tried every which way but loose, right? And from now on, I'm doing away with evil once and for all. And now we're going to enter into the eternal state where all things are made new. And we are impervious to evil. Even the millennium is not impervious to evil because the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, will be an exact uh, mirror image of what Eden was like. Heaven and earth combined and mankind under the, the leadership of one innocent, perfect man, which was Adam, right? But Adam was not impervious to evil. And that's why Christ will also, that's why Satan will be released for the nations. But we, y'all, if y'all have questions, jot them down. I love answering questions. Um, if you have comments, all of this stuff. So I, that was actually a rabbit trail I, I uh, chased, so now I have to shorten my sermon so that uh, we're not here for an extra 15 minutes. Okay, the second one is post-millennialism, and what they believe is we are now living in the millennium. They disagree on whether uh, a thousand years is literal or figurative, so even they, don't, they can't decide whether it's an actual thousand years or or if it's going to take an undesignated period of time. Um, the church will bring about the golden age of Christian ethics. So you see how each and every one of these views, with the exception of premillennialism, which I will point out in just a moment, each and every one of these views points to human's ability 
to perfect the world and change the world. Instead of what grace is all about is that our righteousness as humans is as filthy rags and 10 times out of 10, when we have a chance to do it right for the Lord and, and, and do things right, we're going to blow it. We're going to blow it, okay? And that, our, that we only can rely upon His grace and mercy for the believer. And it's no different in, in end-time prophecy. Um, that would be one that in post-millennialism today, basically meaning after the millennium, Christ will return, okay? Um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's why there's not a whole lot of people that, that believe in post-millennialism today. A recent LifeWay uh, research biblical study found that, oh, I'm sorry. Um, there we go. Let's go to premillennialism. I'm talking to my slide guy back there. Premillennialism. Do you see that slide? There we go. All right. So the literal 1,000-year millennium begins at Christ's return. Israel will see the literal fulfillment of the kingdom promises as they will reign with Christ from Jerusalem for a thousand years. This is when all the prophecies of them uh, being a blessing to all the nations literally will be fulfilled. Okay, that's when the borders, all the borders of all those prophecies specifically will be fulfilled. Okay, um, there are varying views, but some believe the body of Christ will return to reign with him as well. So, um, there's a belief that we, as the body of Christ, will return during the millennium to reign with Christ. Some believe that it's just Israel and that we're just chilling in the heavenlies, okay? Either way, it's going to be great. I'm sure there'll be uh, great food either place. Um, and, and we'll always be in the presence with the Lord. That's a promise. Uh, okay, in a recent LifeWay research biblical study, it was found that 41% of the Christian church has fulfilled they believe that the Christian church has fulfilled or replaced the nation of Israel. This is today in the modern day church. 41% of Christians in the church today believe that um, the church replaced the nation of Israel. 59% believe the church replaces Israel or, or they have no idea or it's really, really confusing to them. Okay, so between the two, um, there's a lot of confusion out there about how the end-time prophecy um, unfolds. Premillennialism is, in the entire world, is the minority view, with maybe the exception of postmillennialism. Um, but that is the view that I take, and I would encourage you to understand the fact that just because something is not believed by the majority, that doesn't mean that it's wrong, okay? Um, as a matter of fact, a lot of times... The majority, the mob, makes rash decisions and they follow trends and rather than actually digging in and, and actually seeing what Scripture says. So I, as I said, I take the pre-millennial view in all of my personal study. It is the most consistent, literal, and historical view of end-time prophecy and the fulfillment of that prophecy. It makes the most sense. It's linear from beginning to end. God... Uh, creating heaven and earth and, and the arch or the arc of history and God finishing it all off. The bookend on the other end is him creating a new heaven and a new earth. And, and we, there are spiritual beings and there are physical beings, but now spiritual and physical are combined. Heaven and earth colliding to worship God in eternity forever. Okay. Premillennialism uh, was rejected by Augustine, Aquinas, uh, Luther and Calvin. 
Some of those are some pretty big names to say, okay, Branch, well, I like those two guys. Why do you disagree with them? Mainly because they're wrong. Um, that was kind of a, kind of a joke there. But, but the thing is, um, I'm glad some of you laugh. Um, each of those guys were convinced of all millennialism, and I'm going to tell you why they were uh, next week, okay? Um, there was a very good reason why they were, why they believed all millennialism. And, and I, don't, uh, there's, I don't blame them for believing that because in their day and time, that seemed to be what the evidence was pointing to. But it's a mistake to, to interpret Scripture based upon the time in which you live, based upon the trends of the day. That it, God's Word is eternal. We do not interpret God's Word based upon trends or things that are happening in our day and time. And I'll explain that more to you um, next week. I'm going to stop right here today, okay? And uh, I think it's a good place to stop. I didn't, I got two-thirds done. Apparently, I have much more to say than what's on my notes. Uh, But I would encourage you guys, if you have questions, I want you to ask me questions. Uh, We'll have time to next Sunday night. If you have questions, we can discuss at that point in time. But... um, I'm going to get into, there's a couple more things that I want to talk about, and we'll see how far we get. But over the next few weeks, I'll just preach until it feels like a natural place to stop, and then we'll stop, and then uh, we'll just kind of walk our way through it over the next few weeks, okay? And again, please ask questions. Um, Let's understand this together, because my heart in all of this is, is that we have a proper interpretation of Scripture and an understanding of end-time prophecy so that we can be unified and that we have a future hope that that Christ calls uh, our blessed hope. Okay, let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you are encouraged by the truth of God's Word. If you're in the Tulsa area and are looking for a local church family that teaches God's Word, then join us at 1030 every Sunday morning Or you can join us live online on our Facebook page or YouTube channel. Until next time, brothers and sisters, as Paul instructed, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you.